0: (laughs) i think that's a great way to start hey hey ho ho nazi Nazi scum scum you've got to go go. (laughs) so that's what protesters were chanting on fifth avenue
1: fifth and 56 that's fantastic
0: well uh patty farmer ladies and gentlemen patty farmer welcome to uh my humble little program
1: oh far from humble tom
0: What um, It seems like you have a very long history with Playboy magazine. So what is your history? And how did you get involved with um, this iconic publication?
1: Well, it wasn't intentional. I am an entertainment archivist. I enjoy uh, scoping out and researching nightclubs from long ago. You know, the Copacabana, the Persian Room, or many other nightclubs and part of the way I write is start out very conventionally putting together a research team finding out all the who what when where and why's when they were built how they were built what it looked like but then I go to the performers themselves and let them talk and tell me stories you know my first book uh, first interview Leslie Gore and uh Stowed out at the Playboy Club. That was part of the story. It's she my party, and I'll me, cry
0: if I want to. Was that absolutely? That was her and song. I want
1: to be Bobby's girl. <laughs> I played that loud when I was fifteen. Uh, there's a Bobby around.
0: That, 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 there's something really timeless <laughs> about that song. It just I know. it refuses to go out of style.
1: Absolutely. And she was telling me the story about uh, working in a, a very elegant New York nightclub, the Persian Room, but told me about starting out at the Playboy Club. And
0: you wrote a book about the Persian Room also.
1: I did. That's what I was researching. So before
0: the story goes any further, I have to know, was there a party where Leslie Gore got her heart broken and she wrote that?
1: No, I think it was Collectively. Yeah, that was Leslie. um, She was
0: just emotional.
1: She was. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) Quincy Jones was her producer at the time, and I think he liked liked those songs. Um, But... Again, you know, I kept hearing about the the Playboy Clubs. I had the good fortune to interview Joan Rivers, and she told me about starting out at the Playboy Club as part of a trio, you know, which I didn't know. Um, So when I was done writing about uh, The Persian Room, about some other um, New York iconic nightclubs, I started, you know, pulling at that thread, and the more I researched the more I found out just uh, how influential, uh, I can't even talk today, Tom, influential uh, Playboy was and how it affected the culture. And um, not only with the clubs, but Hef with the TV show, with the uh, jazz festival, but mainly with the clubs. Uh, They were innovative. He gave a, a lot of young talent a place to start a lot of talent places just to work there ended up being 42 clubs a circuit which we didn't have at that time there wasn't as far as i could tell another nightclub that had multiple locations right there was like the
0: mafia clubs and then playboy club it was a whole new world and it's unfortunate that a lot of people when they think of playboy and hugh hefner they think of some kind of outdated, um, sexist attitude. But Hugh Hefner doesn't get enough credit for what he did for the culture, and especially with, I mean, of course, Playboy magazine, um, but with the clubs and having uh, black African-American performers, and then also there was no um, restriction on um, uh, non-whites being members. And uh, those old... Uh, What was it? Playboy After Dark, the television show. Those, you know, uh, the jazz performers he had on, uh, you know, Dick Gregory famously played at the clubs. I know you write about that. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about about that. But Mm -hmm. the thing that always stands out in my mind is um, Bill Cosby was always there and seeing him puffing on a cigar. And, you know, uh, he was like the young, hot talent. Um, you know, like, I think that might even have been before he started in I Spy, but mm-hmm. it's funny to now think of that, like, Oh, what lascivious activities was right. he up to? But forget Bill Cosby, everybody was screwing their brains out back then.
1: It was the culture. It was the sixties and the pill had just come into, uh, uh, being widely accepted. So it was the swinging sixties. Uh, and you mentioned breaking the color barrier, Um, not only Bill Cosby, but you had, um, Sammy Davis, he had Nat King Cole on his TV show in 1959. And this is a different time in our country. You know, we're going through a lot right now, but in 1959, we had segregation rules, you know, civil rights act didn't come into play until 64.
0: Still had, um, whites only fountains in the back of the bus, Right.
1: And when uh, Hugh Hefner had Nat King Cole on his TV show in 1959, sitting down on a couch and talking to a white author, the next day the world exploded at Playboy because the sponsors and the networks were threatening to pull the show. Uh, I mean, he was threatening threatened with arrest. I mean, this wasn't done. And I think Hefner was always taken by surprise. You know, it was nothing he ever said, I'm going to do this and we'll get a lot of publicity or I'm going to shove it down people's throats. He just did what he thought was good. You know, uh, somebody told me, uh, they said Hefner didn't care if you were black, white, or purple, only if you could sing a song, tell a joke, or swing an instrument. And that's what I found to be true through, you know, five years of writing about Playboy. He was constantly surprised when there was blowback, when he tried to integrate his New Orleans clubs and allow black members as well as performers. He was really surprised that, you know, he got blowback and the law came in. Did you get to interview
0: Hugh Hefner for this book, or is he incapacitated? Yeah. No,
1: no. I talked to, uh, I talked to to Hef. I talked to uh, hundreds of people. But um, what
0: was what was his uh, recollections of that period?
1: Well, talking to Hef, you, you have to talk in uh, short bits. Right you gotta, you, you, gotta, you
0: have to have your top off.
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he, I don't even think that would affect him now. You can't focus if somebody's <laughs> <where>. <laughs> <laughs> 91 and his wife is uh, 31. So, wow. He's, uh, yeah.
0: Him and Mick Jagger, the only guys who probably could pull that off.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm speechless. But um, uh, yeah, okay. and Crystal's great. I love Crystal. But um, that's his wife. His wife. <clears throat> yes. You know, uh, 60 years difference. But whatever. You know. God bless uh, him. Yeah. And they seem happy. And I've been to the mansion many times with both of them. I've been invited to movie night. And you have Crystal's friends, and uh, you know the usual cast of characters from Heff's side. You know Ray Anthony and uh, oh God Fred Dreyer and all those folks. Bill
0: Mar has a has his own bedroom there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but um, but he's great to talk to, and and sometimes uh he'll be answering the question i asked him two weeks ago you know he'll say i've been thinking about this and you know give me an answer about something there but um you know the way he started in 1954 to come up with this you know men's magazine and actually i have a story he wanted to be a cartoonist he did not grow up saying i'm going to start a men's magazine he said, I'm going to make my living being a cartoonist. And he journaled that way. You know, he kept a, a diary with himself as the subject in, you know, a cartoon. You know, half doing all these Jerry Seinfeld kind of like mundane little little things with wisecracks. And we have those in the archives today going back to grade school. Really, wow, his original really yeah.
0: cartoons. Wow.
1: Yeah. And he, so were he they had,
0: like um, sex-minded?
1: I know they All were girls were like big tits,
0: and he's a top. He did
1: have a type. Treat he did you have mind. a type. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but um, you know that's how he wanted to make a living, and he submitted work around with very little success. And in fifty-one, he came out with a comic book of his own. Uh, Fifty? No, it, it was seventy-four. Seventy-four pages. And it was good. I have a copy. Uh, it wasn't good enough, though. It wasn't good enough to compete with the other cartoonists around at that time. You know, the Arnie Roths and Al Jaffe's and uh, Jack Holes. You know, he was was not good enough. So he turned at that so time. So he hired
0: Al Jaffe, He right?
1: ended up doing that. He he uh, started the magazine and hired the comics that... That he loved he hired Jack Cole who was you know the creator of Plastic Man and uh, Al Jaffe who worked with Mad Magazine through the years and Arnie Roth and Jules Pfeiffer and Lee <coughs> Neiman whose work hangs in museums for millions of dollars today but all these great people he hired for cartoons
0: yeah well wow. um you know I um, my father had a subscription to Playboy magazine and um, so I mean I grew up with uh, reading Mad Magazine so I loved Al Jaffe and, um, and I, I, I should give you the, the story that my, my father had a subscription to Playboy magazine but I had two older brothers so by the time it got to me all the pages were stuck together <laughs> and I had to read the articles So that's why I'm smarter than my brothers.
1: No comment there, Tom. (laughs) No comment.
0: (laughs) I'm kidding, but uh, well, not really. But it's really true. Um, But I, you know, it's funny that and those Playboys used to be so thick, and I remember they would they when I was really young they would arrive in the the brown paper, and so it was it, it was really kind of an event, in a house full of men when this playboy and let's like so they're reading the new one you know my brother's the pecking order and like you know the old ones the arc with the archive of playboy magazine was mine <clears throat> and i when i was in high school i went to summer school every year um you know i had problems uh, keeping my mouth shut in class and um the great thing that i used to do in summer school i would take a razor blade and I would cut out the Playboy magazine interviews of like comedians and actors and, you know, Muhammad Ali, anybody I was interested in. And I'd put him in my folder and I would sit there in summer school and it was the great. So I educated myself through entertainment instead of whatever boring thing I was supposed to focus
1: and here you had the summer teachers thinking you were, you know, you had really turned a new leaf. You had become so studious, really paying sitting attention there to your just really focusing.
0: And then also, you know, the the um, you know that outdated, you know, like the Mad Men show and all that. Um, that I mean, there, I, I I think you know there some blame does have to to go on that. I mean, you know, my father. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that that kind of playboy, there's some kind of um, attitude of older men that was poisoned. But I think winning World War II also had something to do with that. We 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 freed the world and we can fuck whoever we want,
1: Yeah.
0: you know, even though we're married. So you can't completely blame playboy. But um, the you know, I think. They get blamed for being kind of outdated, but what I want to give Playboy magazine credit for was, you know, how they funded entertainment and uh, ethnicity and uh, mixing of races. But also, I remember when I was younger, some kids in my neighborhood had a Hustler magazine, and I remember looking at that, and I think, like, Playboy was tasteful, you Mm -hmm. know, and the, the, the women would be, like, you know, beautifully shot with lighting or with, you know, lingerie. And I remember the first time I saw a Hustler magazine, it's like the camera got too close. You could see, like, you know, um, <laughs> toilet paper balls. <laughs> I don't want to go into it. But it's just the kid just, just <laughs> open, gaping. It was just too explicit. And, but the point that I wanted to make, the cartoons were racist. I remember looking at a Hustler magazine and there was the one that always has stood out in my mind is this rich woman is in a Cadillac and she's driving, she's got a little dog in her arm and she turns the corner and she's run over a black man and she in the car and she looks back, she's looking back and the caption said, Oh, thank God. I thought I hit a dog. And like,
1: oh my God.
0: I, <clears throat> I always thought Hustler magazine was appalling. Because, like, you know, the gaping uh, open shots of um, the nether regions and then the, the racist cartoons and then the racist content. And it was a very hardcore racist magazine. So, like, 20 years ago when they made that um, the People vs. Larry Flint movie and everybody went crazy about what an icon for um, freedom of speech. I was like, you know, that guy was an asshole. Hugh Hefner did more for um, American society and and fighting censorship and things like that. And there was there was never even in even in from its inception. I don't think there was ever any kind of racist humor.
1: No, in the, in
0: Playboy no. magazine. Never. So as much as people no. want to criticize it, I I, I think that the, they should get some credit.
1: Right, um, you know there have been men's magazines going way back you know people seem Those to think days. That, they would know,
0: draw naked women on the cave and, walls and
1: they seem <clears throat> to think playboy invented it but yeah. actually they refined it I think you know you go back I can't even uh, remember half the names but I found like 50 magazines that were put out in the 40s and early 50s and Hefner uh, wanted to make sex wholesome I mean I'm putting that wrong, but even well, the, the girl center, next door, right? The girl the, next door was like
0: his, um, like whatever, the his uh, mission statement. He, right. he wanted it to be, you know, which I, like in, I remember in like the late '90s <clears throat> when women started having tattoos mm-hmm. in Playboy magazine, and I always thought that kind of like when you play for the New York Yankees, you can't have facial hair or long hair. Then if you play for the New York Yankees, you have to have a short haircut. And I always thought that the standard of Playboy magazine kind of started to disintegrate when they let girls with tattoos get into it. but
1: They had to become competitive, even back... Uh, I guess
0: I thought all, you know? they couldn't find any women who didn't have tattoos. It was, <laughs> it was a resource problem.
1: Well, back in the, the late 50s and 60s, the motto was, nice girls do. You know, meaning that you know, the cheerleader and the girl next door, the pretty wholesome girls, um, they like sex also, you know, so that's what I think gave gave the average guy, you know, hopes that, you know, well, the girl down the street, you know, maybe he has a chance with her. Um, Hefner specifically did not want strippers and hookers for the models in the magazine. You know, he wanted these teachers and secretaries and you know babysitters whatever um i was like that
0: and like the the girls of it'd be like right you know the girls of the airline industry he even did one of the girls of comedy i remember in the 90s um but like uh you know i I always thought if if that if the magazine was still keeping that standard now they could do um the women of the access of evil that would be interesting (laughs) Some Iranian women and some Syrians.
1: <coughs> oh.
0: <Anyway. laughs> Sorry, Patty. Couldn't help it.
1: But uh, when Penthouse started... Who uh, was we...
0: directly competing with Playboy exactly. magazine. And Bob Guccione, also somewhat of a sleazy character.
1: Right. And they actually pushed Playboy and Hef to uh, what was referred to as the pubic wars. And uh, for quite a long time, Hefner uh, really resisted showing pubic hair. That was, you know, kind of the the line that he wouldn't cross and for good reasons. A lot of the men's magazine would not go there because uh, if you were on one side of that line, uh, you were not kind of touched for You were more obscenity. pornography than art. Right, you weren't touched for percent, uh, uh, pornography. Uh, open. You didn't open yourself to pornography uh charges so just um, by showing pubic hair right wow right that was kind of the line but uh during the pubic wars you know each each time Hep would make a bolder more racy uh step you know gucci would move that line and so they had this big war going on
0: i did not know that
1: they did and uh, so i
0: could see each one of them like with a with a ruler Measuring the, the the bush on each shot.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. And it's funny, like,
0: um, I think uh, all, all, all young women don't even have uh, pubic hair anymore. So I did not know yeah. that. And then so Hustler just said, screw a uh, pubic war. And they just went for
1: pornography, pornography. totally flat out. But uh, Playboy, they had, it was a big deal. The first full frontal nude shot. And I even know the model was Marilyn Cole, and she's a beautiful <clears> girl. Uh, stole around. I, I spoke to her for the book, but um, that was that was the the '90s. 90s.
0: I, some, so uh, keeping with something you said a minute ago, um, <clears throat> I, I remember reading something Hugh Hefner said um, because as you were just speaking, I was picturing uh, you know my father fought in Vietnam, and so Playboy was a big thing for for Vietnam soldiers. So in like World War ii they had Betty Grable and these movie stars. Uh the soldiers would put up the the posters and stuff, but in Vietnam, it was Playboy magazine. Right? And the, the the thing that I remember Hugh Hefner saying was uh about the girl next door, uh attitude was that um you know, your average guy can't have sex with a movie star that those women were unobtainable mm-hmm. but your average guy can the can have sex with the girl who lives next door right or even the if
1: they're totally or a mismatched a works at
0: the library you or know, whatever
1: Half yeah. gave them hope that you know one day if if they read playboy and i uh, <laughs> bought know, the learned, stereo equipment you know you know bought the you stereo held your pipe exactly. in such a manner became suave and sophisticated i i think that was the whole thing the magazine wasn't just about as you said getting laid it was about a lifestyle you know what is the playboy lifestyle i think that was even one of their taglines right
0: I'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you steered it back to that because I, I think that was like the the um you know i was saying how you know they they do need to take blame for a certain attitude that older men had of Fucking around on their wives and the cocktail hour and smacking a secretary on the ass, but they were about somewhat refining yourself as a human being. Mm-hmm. They had book reviews. They had, you know, I, I remember as a teenager reading just, you know, things of, of like how to romance and 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 date. Mm-hmm. I'm a kid. I can't. I can't even. I I I can't even pronounce cavassier. I mean, how am I gonna, uh, you know know how to order that in a restaurant
1: but you learned you need it you know to pick up a pretty girl you need to know what uh, the finest brandy is or whatever Uh, but yeah it was a lifestyle and it was very current at the time it was actually you know new and uh sophisticated and it was the the you know three martini lunch culture and the madman generation but that was the way it was then you know i don't think playboy brought it in i mean jack jones was singing uh, wives and lovers uh i'm do you remember remember that song wives and lovers no. he's almost <clears throat> home put on your makeup <clears throat> and you know i mean all all these things that we look back and we judge for the people you know my grandmother would tell me you know, we liked it. We liked wearing heels. We liked putting lipstick on. We liked looking pretty and, you know, having men open doors and having it clearly defined, you know, what was expected from each sex. So, um, that was that time. It was a definitely a, a clear definition. They weren't telling girls how to pick up guys, you know?
0: Right. And, um, you know, the when was the first um, African American center it was March 65. I read that in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, Jennifer Jackson, I think, was the Very woman's good. name. Yeah, I, I, I read a little bit of it. <laughs> and um, the a little bit <laughs> of kidding. it. I'm
1: kidding.
0: <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, that was, I mean, I'm sure. You know, a lot of places like stopped carrying the magazine and it, it, they did. Um, and then, you know, having like Dick Gregory and other black performers um, at a time when civil rights had not been decided. It was um, a lot of angry people in the
1: country. It was a lot of angry people, but people were also just surprised. You know, you brought up Dick Gregory and he told me Hefner hired him. And hired him for this certain night to, you know, do his four shows or whatever, you know, they were going to have him do that night. He was running late and uh, just went literally running out onto stage. And it happened to be a group of meat packers from Alabama. You know, meat packers are bad enough from Chicago. And, you know, this was Alabama. And they were shocked. They were just You know it was something they had never been exposed to because typically they'd have a white comedian so dick gregory went out and uh they even pointed that out to him they said you know we're from alabama and dick started just started giving it back he said that's okay you know i had the uh, a long weekend in alabama one night you know uh,
0: he said uh i read it in your book he said uh... I, I, I spent 30 days in Alabama one night.
1: <laughs> something like that, exactly. Yeah. But, um, you know, after a few minutes, they were being entertained, and they relaxed, and uh, something very unusual happened. About two hours into the show, which typically run 40 minutes, uh, that the second in charge went over to the mansion and said, have put on a pair of pants. You have to get in the car and come to the club with me because, you know, something we hadn't had happened before is happening. So Hep comes in. It's about three hours later now. And Dick Gregory is still with these meatpackers, you know, and they're laughing. And you know what it's like. You give a comedian a stage and an audience and he'll never get off unless you, you know, physically make him get off. And they weren't letting him get off because they loved The comedy. They loved the humor. And I would surmise that they didn't even look at him as a black man by the end of the night. It was, he was a comedian.
0: I got to be friends with that guy. Yeah.
1: And he was funnier than hell. But the dark side of it, and I don't know if you read that in the book, was every time he knew he was going to perform in a white club, as he was getting ready, as his wife was ironing his shirt, she would yell all these vile things to him
0: so that- yeah uh, that, that I and uh I think that you know um for me as a comedian and being obsessed with comedy and comedy history I think that story alone is why comedy lovers should have this book on their shelf the I I never knew that and I you can see my vinyl record collections mm-hmm. over there I have um you know of like three or four old Dick Gregory records, but the fact that he would have his wife yell racial slurs at him, get off the stage, N word, or you know anything vile, so he would be ready for it when it happened. I mean, yeah. uh, that's incredible. I'm I, I might ask my wife to do that to me.
1: <laughs> and the Dick or Jack Parr show thing, you know, Jack was, <clears throat> I think, surprised when Dick Gregory. Uh, said he wouldn't go on the, uh, Jack Parr show. And Jack said, well, why? You know, people are offering us money to come onto the show and, and here you are, you know, nothing practically you're starting out. I would think you'd really want the exposure. And Dick said, I can't because you never let black comedians sit on the couch and talk to the guests. And Jack just automatically said, well, just come on the show. You can sit on the couch. No big deal. Almost like he, he didn't even realize it. You know, like maybe so, you know, but it's fine with me. Just come on. And he did and got a lot of publicity. But it, I think. And he was people...
0: the first black performer to sit down on the Jack Parr show. Yeah. Which um, it was the first Tonight Show and the history of. Um, Steve Allen was after Jack Parr, right? Or Steve Allen was first. No, I'm not sure. I think Steve Allen might have been first. But anyway.
1: Right, right. But, but it was a big deal.
0: The, it was the, a big deal. It was one of the most um, uh, important shows in the history of entertainment.
1: Right.
0: And right. I didn't know that.
1: And so Playboy played a, a big part, a big role in uh, in so many ways. You know, giving, giving comedians and singers a circuit to perform at, to start at uh again, in, in the book, uh, Bill Marks wrote the foreword, and he remembered uh, George Burns being over at the house, hanging out with his dad, and lamenting the fact that there was no places to be bad anymore. And of course, he meant uh, not be a great comedian, not have your timing down, not Know no. how to perform in front of an audience, not how to misbehave. Too bad he's misbehave. dead. I could give him a little <laughs> But but the playboy clubs, when they came in, to uh, to being was a place to be bad. You they worked you to death. You did four or five shows a night. Actually, you did. You kept doing shows if twenty percent of the people from the last show showed up. another show so say you had 50 people for the show prior you know if if you know 20 percent, which is only 10 you know show up you had to do another show you know not the same people but people but sometimes
0: it would be the same people and and they'd have to push themselves to do different but you got
1: better and and you got the timing down and you uh, got the punchlines down and you worked it and you were ready to move up to the next level. You know, and that was one group of, of people, performers. They moved up and they became household names. There's a whole other uh, group of comedians that we've never heard of. You know, they weren't household names, but it was a place they got a paycheck and they could work the Playboy circuit.
0: Yeah, there was like, what, there was like 40, 40 clubs at one clubs.
1: time? So you could work... <clears throat> You could work all year long at a a Playboy club and then repeat again. You could do that for 10 years. And this
0: was before there were comedy club chains. So um, that um, was like the way comedy club chains are now. That was kind of like a full entertainment version of that with singers and jazz musicians and comedians. The other thing I learned from your book is how um, the Playboy club circuit was very great and generous to older comedians. And kept them working, and that was how they could keep their name out in the public, but also how the Playboy machine had this great PR department and would make sure that they had newspaper and radio interviews uh, in all these cities. Right. And um, that, that must have been great. Because, so I mean, now, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still working a lot, but I know a lot of older friends of mine who, you know, uh, you, you've got to really work your ass off to survive in this business. So, and that's
1: nowadays like, where we have, you know, social media and, you know, 549 TV channels and, uh, you know, a lot of alternate forms of, of getting your your self out there and your name out there. And back in the 60s, there was, you know, what, four, four TV stations and, you know, not too much, you know, a club here, a club there, you know, quite a few clubs, but, you know, Playboy had 42, and it really did bridge that uh, time span from the nightclubs of the 50s, which were kind of waning, to the comedy clubs of the 70s, you know, the comedy club and the improv and all those. It gave, you know, all those comedians, you know, the, the David Brenners and Letterman and Billy Crystal Steve Martin all these people played at the Playboy Club at one time we have generations of them
0: I like the, the i like the story um, you know I, and I only because I'm a comedy aficionado do I even oh remember my, this my
1: aficionado do, do I know I this like guys?
0: that name um, I like uh, that word <laughs> I'll let you uh, um, yeah I, I, I <laughs> love, love, love my comedy books and you can see over me um, uh, Professor, uh, Irwin Corey. So oh. <laughs> he was massive in like the, the fifties and it's and his shtick or, uh, his thing was, well, he, um, I'm getting, I'm going to get this wrong, but he was like the smartest man in the world.
1: Was that it? Right, it, Professor Irwin Corey, the ultimate authority or
0: yeah. There some there was yeah. some catchphrase that I'm getting wrong, but it, but basically yeah. he was like I the smartest it. man in the world, and um, so he worked the the Playboy clubs. I love the joke that you put in there, of his where about a guy who goes um,
1: the whaling wall. The whaling wall. Let me tell you. Tell,
0: tell the, go ahead.
1: I have to tell you what happened with that. My editor, you know, because you submit your manuscript and it's all done and. And my arrangement with the publisher is, I don't want a word changed unless I give the approval for it. You know, so the editor, she uh, handed it back and she was saying, "You can't put this joke in there. You know, you're going to offend, you know, all the Jewish people in the world." And I said, "Well, Professor he was Jewish, wasn't he?" Moon Corey is a strict. A Jew, right? And no. this is a classic Irwin Corey joke, so the joke stays. And
0: Jewish and people are hilarious and have a great yes. sense of humor. What Jewish person would ever get offended by it? it's? I think it's like uh, uh, probably one of the greatest Jewish jokes ever told.
1: Uh, it was it was hysterical, and every time Do you I want hear to tell it or should I? You tell it. You tell it. <laughs> so it's well, it's I, very uh, funny.
0: I I marked it here. I'll, uh, I'll read it so I don't screw it up. The um... A man was praying at the Wailing Wall for 20 years and was being interviewed. The reporter says, You've been praying at the Wailing Wall for 20 years. Yep, morning, noon, and night, I'm praying. 20 years, I'm praying. In the morning, I pray there should be peace in the world. And in the afternoon, I pray that misery and hunger should be eliminated. And finally, at night, I pray that the Palestinians and the Zionists should get together and make peace. That's a nice thought, the reporter said. Tell me, what's it like waiting for 20 years? To tell you the truth, <laughs> it's like talking to a fucking wall.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's classic Irwin Corey.
0: That is it's... like one of the greatest jokes. It's, <laughs> it's, it's simple and perfect and historically um, and biblically uh, yeah. rabbinically hilarious. Any way you slice rabbinically. it.
1: Rabbinically. Boy, you're just throwing him out today. I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Irwin Corey, I enjoyed talking to him so much that long after my interviews for the books were over, I would still go visit him. Nice. We uh, lost him last year at 102. Wow. And I have.
0: So God had no problem with that God joke? God had no problem <laughs> at all. And uh, <laughs> Obviously, God was a fan of that joke, or the man would have died a lot sooner.
1: And up to a hundred and two, I had to tell Erwin to keep his hands to himself. No
0: kidding. Yes. Really?
1: Erwin, don't make me slap your hands.
0: Wow. I,
1: he he was really sharp. You know, I last time I saw him was a couple months before he he left. And uh, we would go and he would be a, a voracious reader and we'd talk about, you know, some unknown thing that happened during world war ii he was always educating me he really was the foremost authority that, that was it. it that was it, it. That, was it. it. that was his yeah.
0: tagline there it is erwin Cor- professor erwin corey yeah. the foremost authority yeah well uh and, and and there was an interesting little sentence when you were talking about him and it's funny you say because he couldn't keep his hands off you that he said um i forget the the the, the wording but it was that um, his time at the Playboy Club might not have been as wild as he uh, would would boast about. I forget the wording of it, but yeah. like, um, um so I guess he was I, I guess he had his hands on a lot of women and yes. was uh, uh,
1: he you know, the Playboy clubs had a <laughs> lot of rules and regulations right um, for many reasons. You know, we talked about the mob and we could. Go there for a long time.
0: Mob did a lot for comedy. I, got, I, I And from what I heard, Las Vegas was a much more enjoyable place to work when the mob ran it.
1: What did David so, Brenner tell me? Did you read that? He no. said Playboy was second best to the mob. He mm. said working for Playboy was second best to working for the mob, and they were wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I play at Brad Garrett's uh, comedy club at the MGM, and Brad's a, a, a wonderful friend of mine and he opened for Sinatra for years Mm -hmm. and he tells me stories and he always says the no one ran no one treated entertainers better than the mob
1: right I've heard that over and over they they
0: knew how important you were to the entertainment Mm -hmm. business and you know
1: yeah we don't have enough time here but David told me a lot of stories you know for working uh in Vegas with the mob and uh very funny stories but but anyway
0: um david put out a very (laughs) uh i never read it uh but a book with a very cheesy title uh right after september 11th and the book is entitled uh waiter there's a terrorist in my soup
1: (gasps) irreverent (laughs) You know, but that's comedy. That's comedy. You know, you it gets you talking. Yeah. Right? You don't ignore it. Good point. You can't ignore it. Great point. Um, oh,
0: the thing I wanted to say, were you about to make a point? I don't want to. I, I just, was, but I totally um, forget what it okay. was. So never mind. Uh, if, if you have it, I want you to tell me. Because <laughs> I remembered why I um, I got lost in that great uh, Erwin Corey joke. But um, I didn't know that, and you say in the book that he gave George Carlin his first set at the Playboy Club, and then George Carlin started being a regular there. mm mm-hmm. um, That he let George Carlin, George Carlin wanted to do like a, he wanted to try out a couple of bits for the Ed Sullivan show, and then he went on and ended yeah. up doing like an hour.
1: But I think that's <clears throat> totally uh, shows the uh, the way the comics work. They're, they're a very gracious bunch, and I think. You know, they're always uh, uh, lending jokes back and forth. Sometimes mm, stealing that, jokes. That, that doesn't back and happen forward. today. No, and,
0: no. <laughs> uh, stealing a joke
1: will get your ass beat. Well, <laughs> sorry. No worries. I know what we were talking about. Um, Irwin and the Playboy clubs. Uh, uh, Hef's brother Keith ran the bunnies in the clubs. It was a tough job, you know, but somebody had to take the responsibilities for for the bunnies. And, um, you know, they had rules and regulations and Irwin always tried to break them and get away with as much as he could, Um, but he didn't get away with as much as he liked to brag about. But he and Half went back to, before he even opened a club, before Half opened the club, they used to play poker in one of the little other clubs in Chicago. And uh, Irwin told me that Hef always had his, uh, always had or never had his name carved in the table. Because if you won, you got to, you know, put a line next to your name on these tables where you played poker. And Hef never did. But that's how far back they they knew each other. And Irwin was one of the first uh, comics that he tapped to come. And he was
0: huge in yeah. the 50s. He was yeah. like... Um one of the most um, um, uh, he one of the most dominant presence for a comedian on 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 television shows back then. Absolutely. So, what is the history with with George Carlin and and Lenny Bruce that you talk about?
1: Oh, um, <clears throat> well, you mentioned that uh, Carlin did work at the Playboy clubs. And he did. He he played there when he was starting out. When he
0: was like when when he was clean before. Right, very the,
1: collegiate. You know, he wore a sweater. Yeah, and, and he was having you know, a great career. Right, right. And he was doing a lot of college campuses, and so he kind of looked like college kid. But then, you know, he evolved as you know most comedians do, and like we said, they they have a habit. You have a habit, you all, of uh, pushing the envelope and trying other things and. He had, uh, at that time, he came up with the seven words you couldn't say on TV, and he thought he couldn't say them on TV, but he could say them at the Playboy Club, and uh, Hef told him he couldn't. He said, you know, I love you, you're, we've become good friends, and I will go to any club that has you if I'm wow. in town. Wow, so you
0: couldn't say cocksucker motherfucker nah, at the Playboy nope. Club.
1: Nope, he said, but So he cannot... had a
0: line, that's interesting.
1: But you cannot So tell... here's
0: all these um, publications in America, and... News media branding him as a heretic and like um, soiling the American mind, uh, but he...
1: Playboy clubs were the opposite. He wanted uh, men to come and, you know, bring their clients during the days, bring their girlfriends Friday night, bring their wives Saturday night. (laughs) Uh, But uh, he wanted it as a, a place that you wouldn't be embarrassed to bring a girl to. You know, it wasn't a men's club. Even though it was a men's club, you know, oh, you yeah, yeah, kept yeah, it yeah. clean and you couldn't yeah. curse. That was, you know, one of the big things. Or you couldn't uh, be too blue. You know, you can slip one or two things in there, but you really couldn't. And Lenny Bruce, again, you know, Lenny was, I think, the first comedian on his TV show. And if you ever get a chance to watch it. it, have yeah. you seen yeah, it? Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, it's been... Tattoo I... and,
0: yeah, I, um, I I have a VHS tape of it in a yeah. box somewhere. It's great, yeah. it's
1: great, and it was very innocuous, you know, nothing over the top, you know, just uh, pure Lenny Bruce, you know, talking about how his aunt at Thanksgiving threw a fit when she saw a tattoo on him, because as a Jewish man, he couldn't be... Buried on sacred ground. If he, yeah, accepted. you can be
0: buried in a Jewish cemetery yeah. if you're. So uh, he
1: said he was going to cut off his arm. and <laughs> they could bury the rest of them there. But um, you know, half really like genuinely liked Lenny, and tried to help him as much as he could. And he quickly could not perform on on any of the Playboy outlets. But um,
0: Hef yeah, so still, I guess I guess like. Um... Heroin was a big no-no if you couldn't um, uh, say yeah. certain words on stage.
1: Yeah, I think that yeah. was a, a bad one. But Hep still, uh, at the beginning of your show, we were talking about how he was a big First Amendment uh, champion, and he was. So he sent Playboy lawyers to defend Lenny in a lot of uh, wow. a lot of times when he got arrested for whatever. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, and,
0: and the, the financial costs are what drained Lenny and ruined yeah. him and led to uh, his ultimate destruction so yeah. way too
1: young 40, 42 or somewhere around there
0: I don't know if it's true I read a, um, uh, somewhere years ago that Yakov Smirnoff lives in Lenny Bruce's <laughs> Hollywood Hills home and owns it what a country so uh what other important um uh things about american comedy history did you learn or uncover while working on this book
1: oh gosh too many things to uh to even remember right now but but that's why i do what i do you know people ask me why entertainment archivist you know and why a certain kind of generation, you know, bygone generations. And it's because we're losing people. You know, I talked to David Brenner and he's gone. Jen Rivers, she's gone. Uh, a lot of people, Al Giro, you know, talk talked to him for days, wow. he's gone. And, you know, their stories live on. Their, you know, entertainment uh, stories, how they got their Uh, starts their trials and tribulations
0: yeah Uh, and these stories and history dies with a lot of people what's your favorite memory or story um with or about Joan
1: Rivers oh gosh Joan Rivers um I felt very honored to get the interview to begin with because she's you know when I went after her she was a huge headliner and um they turned down most interview requests but Somehow because of my reputation I got through and yet she was still very cautious. And at the beginning she said, um, because Joan doesn't suffer fools. She's not funny one-on-one. So she asked me, she said, have you done your homework? And I said, um, I think I have. And, uh, I said, I know you started out at the Playboy club as part of a trio, Jim, Jake, and Joan. And, um, you weren't that good and and that seemed to crack her up you know and and relax her and she said okay you've done your homework and then we we got down to business and uh she told me about being at the Playboy clubs for the start the middle and the uh apex of her career as a trio as a stand-up comedian and then as a headliner and she said she loved the Playboy clubs that um I asked, you know, if you had a preconceived idea that maybe changed. And her big line was, I was shocked that the bunnies weren't sluts. Uh, She said they were all, you know, great girls, and I'm still friends with a lot of them. And this was when she was 80 years old. Wow. I
0: love Joan Rivers. She was Uh, great. And uh, trailblazer in the the comedy world.
1: She really was. And uh, Phyllis Diller, you know, that was another... Uh, a niche market that half shown the spotlight on was the women comedians. You know, Phyllis Diller, Toddy Fields, Joan Rivers, Lily Tomlin, Kay Ballard. You know, we um, talked to as many of them as we can and or as we could and did some history on the others.
0: Uh, as a woman, what is your feeling um, about? Um, Playboy magazine and the uh, I mean you, you seem like you, you have a passion for the the history of um, you know the, the comedians, the club, the magazine, the cartoons Hefner himself
1: You know I think <clears throat> uh, Hef is a genius
0: because, because like you're saying about people dying like this whole like as controversial as that was like I think th- th- uh, that all this, people twenty years from now will have a vague memory of, exactly. of even oh, the will. concept of it.
1: Exactly. So you please, know, um, don't no. Me it off. was, um, you know, Hef is a genius. I mean, he's a certifiable genius. His business practices were groundbreaking at the time. You know, before President Trump ever put his name on the building or a building, uh, Heff had the <clears throat> concept of branding. Yeah, um, You know, he changed the meaning of Playboy and you see Playboy where you see the rabbit and, you know, you know exactly what that means. Uh, franchising, cross-marketing, he had a lot of great bus- business ideas. But with the magazine, I think it also really contributed to our culture. And he gets a bad rep from the, the women's movement when in actuality he was a champion. The magazine was, uh, championing for pro-choice and the pill way before any other magazine would even address the issue. So he was always for women's rights. He was for all rights, human rights, civil rights, women's rights. And I think he's just, uh, misunderstood.
0: Yeah. It's too bad that, um, it seems like the magazine isn't, um, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I, I didn't live anywhere for 10 years. I've, I've been living here. So last year something came in the mail, you know, Playboy magazine for like however many issues. And I was like, oh, you know, had this nostalgic feeling and this entirely different magazine showed up yeah. to my door. It, um, it reminded me of Maxim magazine, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the college magazine that was popular 10 years ago. I don't even think Maxim is popular now. Right. The articles were very short. Uh, they don't even have nudity. I think they went back to They nudity. went back
1: to the <clears throat> girls.
0: Which yeah. you you never heard that. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's like, that was like um, Coke changing their recipe. Right. Why would you uh, change the formula yeah. of what made you popular in the first place? And the fact that, like I said earlier, they've always been tasteful. There was no reason to get rid of it. But... Um, It's now people grow up with pornography. It's, I mean, like from a very young age, they're seeing explicit videos and, um, a a tastefully shot naked woman in a magazine is, um, like really no big deal. So, uh, I, 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 I let the thing run out. Um, but, uh, it it really was unfortunate what's what what happened to playboy magazine and well i think i don't know who's running it but maybe you should um apply
1: (laughs) i do have an article in there uh coming out in a few months um but i think they're trying to find their way and i don't think they will i really think their time is over
0: it's all behind us
1: yeah exactly well you know I, I personally, they're trying to be
0: something else. They're trying to be and different. They,
1: but they don't know <clears throat> what. They've gone down to every other month publishing it. Uh, you know, they tried different things. They got rid of the girls, they got rid of the cartoons. Oh, wow. Um,
0: You're right. I didn't even notice Yeah, anything.
1: Yeah. And now they, it took a year, but they brought the girls back. Um, but I think they're, I think the company that owns them. And this is totally my own opinion, but I think they just want that to keep the magazine in their inventory, you know, for whenever. Well, like They're, the
0: brand itself is worldwide, and so they make money off of like...
1: Licensing. If you, <clears throat>
0: when you, licensing. I, know when I travel around the world, Asia or wherever, you'll see like Playboy underwear, and mm-hmm. there's Playboy, um, you know, uh, home linens, and there's just so... Playboy is branded in many different ways other than the magazine. So I guess the magazine is not where they're making any money these no, days. No,
1: not at all. It's licensing and branding, like you said. And the little Do bunny it?
0: rabbit, yeah. yeah. It's like the Rolling Stones lips or right. the shell gasoline uh, orange shell thing. It's Yeah. It's a...
1: But even, even uh, back in the 50s, Hef, as soon as he came up with that trademark uh, bunny thing, he trademarked it. I mean, he trademarked everything. He trademarked the bunny outfits that the the girls wore in the clubs. You know, Hef was all about uh, control. You know, he did not want to be uh, usurped, you know, have somebody else come up with, uh, you know, that same thing. Although, every Halloween we see bunnies running around, so I think his trademarks being infringed on
0: brilliant businessman so he really was. did he sell his house and the stipulation was that he got to live in it until he died wasn't that it
1: that was this time when it sold it had been sold you know a, a corporation owns playboy now and when hefner sold to that corporation way back i forget the year but maybe around 1990 the stipulation was he would stay in his home he wouldn't own it, but he would be a tenant in residence forever. So when they resold it, that became the big deal, like it was a new, you know, new agreement. And it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a binding agreement that, you know, the house, you could buy the house, but you couldn't use it until Hef died or decided he wanted to move out. Well, wow. And he'll never move out. It's his home.
0: So what's it like going there now? Is it like um, going to a playground where kids don't go anymore?
1: You know, it's (laughs) like a, a another mansion in Beverly Hills. You know, it's, it's beautiful. I've heard a a couple people, a couple uh, of the girls next door, the ones that weren't picked uh, came out with books and they said it was falling around, uh, falling down and very shabby. That was not, my experience at all it's a beautiful building beautiful mansion the grounds look like they were cut by toenail clippers they're so uh, beautifully kept with peacocks running around um but you know you can only imagine what it was like with the grotto yeah and the naked girls all over Simpson the place and, and, and
0: roller boogie yep you know satin shorts in the 70s yeah
1: in my book one of my cartoonists one of the uh, few female cartoonists olivia told me about one day when uh they were talking to her about becoming a regular cartoonist and she had gone to the mansion and it was so surreal and she lives in you know a little other world anyway um and she said there was an ice tear in the backyard and they had all kinds of food, you know, caviar and lobster tails and peanut butter sandwiches, just anything anybody could want. And it wasn't a party. It was just an everyday thing that they did. And she said she was talking to uh, one of Hef's girlfriends there and she turned around and she saw this enormous emu. Wow. And do you know what an emu is? Yes, of is? course. I've, a... I've been to Australia. And uh, that's right, you have. Yeah. You have worked and lived in Australia. I'm going
0: to Sydney on Sunday.
1: Pecking at the food. And she said it was like, she knew she wasn't doing drugs, but it was like, you know, like a trip, just seeing this emu's head peek over this, you know, seven foot ice sculpture holding all this exotic food and pecking at the food. And wow. that was, you know, back in the day. Uh, Where you'd have emus and naked girls and top movie stars running around the place.
0: Um, Here's a quick knowledge nugget for you. The emu uh, male raises the children. Just wanted to share that
1: okay and what do the emus do at that time that go out to work does, does cocaine at
0: the playboy mansion that's what the female emu does uh let me tell you one last um story uh regarding playboy magazine and my own personal history which is really comical because um now how you know um pornography is like you know prevalent um and just how innocent how in, just how innocent, Playboy Mad Boy magazine it is, in comparison. Um, in the uh, 96, 97, when I was living in Los Angeles, and I, I had my own sitcom. And I was dating this actress, and I was living in the Hollywood Hills. <clears throat> and I don't know if you remember Tower Records mm-hmm. on Sunset. So, uh, you see, I have a massive music collection, and I've always been into music, and and books and things like that. So one of my favorite things in the world was to go to Tower Records and spend, um, you know, a hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars on buying new music and, and whatever. And they had a video room and there was this section of Playboy videos. And there was... Uh, and I, I think this is... Only men like my age or older would remember. I think like men of a certain age, like you had like a, a, a Playboy playmate that you you know, was, you were a big fan of, and there was a woman, I, I, uh, her name was Julie Clark, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and, uh, she was like a playmate, like 90, 91, 92, something like that, so I'm just looking, I'm buying things, I've got lots of money, and I've got my basket full of, um, CDs and music and things, and I'm looking for movies in the VHS thing, and, Oh, my God, there's a VHS video of Julie Clark by Playboy magazine. So I get it, I bring it home. And then this actress that I was uh, dating lost her mind and was so... How would you like it if I brought home a video with men with 10-inch dicks and washboard stomachs? And I was like, well, I wouldn't like that at all, darling. (laughs) And she goes let's watch it together and like oh my god i didn't want to watch this with her and of it kind course of
1: defeats the whole purpose totally
0: defeats the whole purpose and um uh and i wasn't ashamed of it i wasn't hiding it uh and it was like of course playboy magazine or however the videos worked it was like whatever the girl says she likes doing they show her naked doing it i really enjoy horseback riding and then she's horseback riding naked, and I really love playing billiards. Bareback to bareback. Smart, very smart. And then, like, you know, I like playing billiards, and then she's naked on a pool table. And uh, I got so much grief and stress over this stupid Julie Clark video, and it's just really funny um, to think by today's, um, you know, pornographic standards, Uh, what an innocent little video that was. So, uh, Julie Clark, I hope you're listening and God bless you wherever you're at.
1: <laughs> you broke up a relationship.
0: <laughs> no. no, there were many other reasons. So, Patty, oh, you're. Uh...
1: Wait, we more sorry. Yeah. I have to tell you really quick Please. because I had a, a brain freeze when we were talking about it before. Playboy and the Mob. Oh, yeah, I have yeah, to yeah, tell yeah. You Please. Really quick. Please. Um, it wasn't that, you know, somehow they just magically skipped through any mob involvement. There was a a day when Hef had some uh, visitors from a certain family. And they sat down and Hef sat down and they said they thought it would be a good idea if Hef went into partnership with them. And this is when he only had uh, Chicago, New Orleans and New York clubs. And uh, Hef calmly looked at them and he always can boil everything down to the simple. And he said, look, he said, I have the federal government, state government, and the Catholic Church every day of the week, every hour of the day, trying to shut me down and looking for any reason to do so. Do you really think I am the best partner to have? And they actually took that, processed it, and said, you're absolutely right. And they got up and left. Wow. Never to be heard from again.
0: Genius. What a perfect rebuke.
1: Yeah. But but it wasn't even a... a something that he made up hoping it would work he just that's the way it was and they were they were always looking to close them down
0: well wow. and the truth uh usually works better than anything else yeah so uh i it's been an absolute delight talking with you um and uh w- you've written a number of books already the the book that we're we've talked about extensively is called playboy laughs if you're um looking to add that to your um uh, book collection uh any comedy lovers uh interested in the history of the stories we've talked about what do you think you're going to work on next
1: i'm still working at playboy i have one more in the trilogy uh playboy thinks and it is about what we were talking about the great writers editors well if you need to know anything about the
0: interviews uh, uh i studied them extensively <laughs> <laughs> during summer school uh, so, so Playboy thinks, and it's going to be thinks. so. Uh, so Norman Mailer, all those, um, uh, all the great,
1: the great editors. You know, Heff Heff's genius was getting the best, whether it was a cartoonist, beautiful girls. Uh, he had had people running his clubs like Tony Roma and Arnie Morton, who were tops in the restaurant business and went on to become, you know, Tony Roma's ribs and Arnie Morton's uh, steakhouse. Uh, so he had the very best in the business. He had the best editors, writers, uh, interviews.
0: Yeah, and he and uh, he hired the the greatest um, uh, writers of 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 the modern era to write Definitely. for Playboy magazine.
1: Ian Fleming, you know, yeah. uh, wrote uh, seven short stories uh, before they were made, picked up and made into uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, and on and on and to repay hefner for that um you probably remember but diamonds are forever james bond pulls out his wallet in one scene and next to his license to kill is his playboy club
0: card. oh wow in the movie in the movie Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Yes. Brilliant branding. Uh, I, You know what just popped into my mind? And that, that is a great next book for you to work on, okay. and I would love to talk with you about it when you finish.
1: But, okay, but we have to sell this one. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It is Playboy. a hard sell yeah. getting books bought now.
0: I, I Yeah, <laughs> I, I believe it. I mean, there's um, bookstores practically don't even exist anymore. Yeah. So, yes, please buy Playboy Laughs by Patty Farmer. And the a story that just popped into my mind that I remember reading was James Cameron wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High was originally a story written for Playboy magazine Mm -hmm. and the graphic that went with the beginning of the story there's like a school scene and there's a girl with braces eating a banana and I remember reading that and then uh, I graduated high school in 1985, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I think, came out like 82, 83, one of the most important movies of my high school years, and I felt like I was so cool that I, I was the only person who knew that this had originally been a, a article in, or a story in, in Playboy. It was like discovering a band before anyone else did, you know what I'm saying? So. very
1: cool we could go on and on in closing
0: do you have any words of wisdom or advice for the people of the earth
1: i do not be (laughs) kind
0: (laughs) okay patty farmer thank you so much for uh being on my program and long may you run
1: well thank you tom thank you for inviting me
0: hooray